Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. They're, they they are the biggest. They're the ones that I look at as like trying to chase a monopoly and, and owning the industry. Um, they also have like a bunch of problematic shit. I have a friend who had a film that was offered to be uh, made by... Tencent or funded by Tencent and they were like no black people <laughs> bigger tits wait what uh, like, yeah yeah like a lot of like rules that they have that <laughs> okay yeah um <laughs> that I think also has had a hand in you know some triple a games again I don't want to speak on any of this because I'm so worried about getting sued by Tencent but oh this is what I've heard rumors not sure if any of this is true um but you know, like, even games that are out where they were like, yeah, that character needs to have bigger tits, or you need to make a skin lighter type shit. Um, wow. Hi, can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can. That's amazing. It worked on the first try. I love that for us. I know, right? It actually never happens, so it's quite fantastic. How's it going, Alana? <laughs> I'm doing all right. How are you? I am doing fantastic. I was just watching all the anti-lockdown rallies that are going on worldwide and enjoying mm. the uh, the fun. Yep. It's, um you know, still a state that we're in. And I love <laughs> this for all of us. <laughs> Absolutely. That said, like, I feel like everybody who plays video games is always fine with lockdowns. I never had a problem. I was completely fine. <laughs> I was also going to say uh, we got out easy on that one. I got to catch up on, like, all yep. the games I've been missing out on. Totally. Yeah, it was great. Go through backlogs. Yeah, basically not a problem. <laughs> um, do you want to give everyone a quick introduction to yourself, where they can find you, the socials and all that wonderful stuff? Sure. Hello. Uh, my name's Alana Pierce and I am a video game writer currently working at Sony Santa Monica Studio, but I'm also a content creator. I make a bunch of podcasts mostly. Um, and I am on all of the social media at Charlazard, which is my name in the middle of Charizard. Nobody ever knows how to spell it. It's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, I guess the first question I was uh, going to ask you is what made you want to get into writing video games? Uh, I, When I grew up, I always loved video games and I always loved writing. It was always those two things. So I feel like I like cheated. You know, there are people who don't know what they wanted to do their whole lives. I was, I figured it out by I was like the time I was 10, maybe. Um, I was writing books as soon as I could write. And uh, playing video games as soon as I could figure out how to do that. So I just put those two things together and it made sense. So for someone like me who also grew up absolutely loving video games, uh, you'll have to explain how does the writing process work for something that's like triple A? Because in my head, I've got this idea where it's like, oh, I could write the God of War story. Cool. And then uh, (laughs) but obviously, I'm, I'm assuming you are with like a team of people like a hive mind who all have to combine on a script to make it that grandiose. Yeah, I try to be a little bit careful about how I talk about Santa Monica Studio specifically, even though I'm sure I could. I just try to, like, you know, not share how the studio specifically works. But speaking on a, on a broader scale, um, it's not super different to a TV writer's room. Uh, there are, a, like you said, a bunch of people who come together who have a lot of meetings, which are called writer's rooms, 
um, where you brainstorm certain ideas, go over certain characters, pitch ideas that you have, and then you take that all away. Um, generally think up more ideas for the next pitch meeting, and then uh, each person will be assigned like a different thing to write. So you're usually taking certain characters that you gravitate towards, or sometimes like a full episode is how it works in TV. Um, in a lot of AAA, it's you know a certain level, for example. Um, there are some studios that have it where one person writes only one character. Uh, I think that that is slightly less popular these days, though, because uh, it can be really limiting. So it's, yeah, it's figuring out how to make sure you all write the characters the same way. You know them all. You know every character's, like, plot point and turns. And um, I feel like the plots come after the characters every everywhere that I've ever written fiction. I think it's a lot easier to write if you have complex characters and simple plots, at least to begin with, and then everything expands from there. But, um, yeah, a lot of people Ooh. talking in a room and then banging shit out on a keyboard and trying to figure it out, basically. I was going to ask who kind of has the overarching idea. Like if I was to take a game, say like Bioshock Infinite, is it the director himself and then a team of people who are like the core idea of this is going to be surrounding, you know, finding this individual, rescuing her, and then the whole thing being about dimensions? Or is it kind of like the writer's room hashes out what the main idea is going to be and then you start to build from there? Mm, Depends on the game. Um, So I imagine with Bioshock, that's Ken Levine. I feel like Ken Levine probably came to the writer's room and was like, here's the ideas that I have. And then the writer's jobs are actually to fix a lot of the problems uh, because nobody has a perfect idea. So it it is like so collaborative. That's why AAA gaming is like 400 plus people to make something. So in that situation, I would imagine, like I said, Ken Levine comes and is like, here's kind of the vision that I have. And then the writers go, "Okay, well, I don't like that part or this part maybe isn't strong for this reason. How do we fill in some of your holes, but keep your vision together? And then, you know, that there's ongoing pitch meetings. So it's super collaborative. Um, some studios, and I feel like it shows very well, and as a writer, I would hate to ever have to work at one of these studios, they do gameplay first, level design and gameplay all come first, and then they hire writers sometimes like last minute on a project, and I feel like you can always tell the games that do that, because they have terrible stories. (laughs) The video game industry is like, now coming around to realizing that stories uh, are important and that people get more invested in games if they care more or they feel emotionally connected to the characters, so... That's certainly changing. But yeah, there are some studios who just don't even think about it. Let it happen way last minute. And it's writers in a room trying to like scramble in to figure out how a plot is going to fit into the already established levels. Um, Santa Monica Studio, like publicly known for not being like that. It's a very story first studio. Uh, Rockstar would be a very story first studio. Um, So it's, you know, the writers working with the rest of the narrative design team, then working with the Every other team, obviously, cinematics team's a huge part. Um, animation, I mean, it's just just so many people. But uh, yeah, it definitely depends on the studio. Um, but I would say directors, like generally, their job is to maintain the vision across all of those different departments. So making sure that every single different department, all you know, three hundred whatever people who work on a AAA game, um, are working towards the same goal and making sure everything feels really cohesive. Because there is so many moving parts, at what point does the writer's room have to come up with, say, X amount of content and then deliver that to whatever the next phase may be? Like, are you doing this in conjunction with a coding team working on an engine or is it you start to come in after some preliminary stuff of the game has already been established? Depends on the game. Again, um, and the studio and where they're at, at what time in, in development of what thing, really. So I think that that varies, like, really significantly. Uh, it's not unheard of that writers are the first part of a of a project that that can happen. Um, I mean, generally, you already have an engine, or you know what engine you're going to use before you would you would start writing. But that's not that doesn't mean that anyone's working on it or is actively programming it. 
Um, but yeah, I, I feel like that one's hard to answer other than to say it like could be different at literally every studio. Like it, it varies significantly. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of AAA studios, like, you know, your Call of Duties and, and your Assassin's Creed's who are working on three plus games at any one period of time. I would imagine how they function, uh, having not worked on either of those games, um, is that they have writers as soon as they finish the first project move on to the next one while they wait for the rest of the team to be done because in theory you can kind of finish writing a little bit earlier otherwise i can't picture how else they get a game out every year so it's i feel like gotta be just writers moving and and everybody else moving as soon as they're ready to move maybe it's not even that organized just like whoever is done with the previous game and can be moved on to the next project has got to move on to the next project so they can keep churning games out how much um, how much creative freedom do you have uh, working for a studio? That, well, you don't have to answer because you don't want to answer about your own studio, but how much freedom do writers in the industry working at your level typically have compared to what the vision of the director who's working on the game is, right? Like, does that depend on what section of the game itself you're responsible for writing? Uh, do, is there a lot of pushback in terms of like, hey, there's this character that I've created and I really I want to explore this arc with him, maybe for a side quest or something? Or will they tell you, well, no, we'd rather you go down this road? Um, so I have worked on a number of games, some of them just not announced yet, some of them have been, and I think my experiences are pretty consistent across the board where it depends on the topic. Um, so there are going to be certain things that certain people, not even the director, are really attached to and don't want to change. Um, so like, you know, if, if even one of the writers in the writer's room is really attached to this certain thing, everyone else is going to be like, okay, well, we'll always let you write that thing. Or if I have questions about that, that area, I'm going to go to you and ask about it. Um, but yeah, there'll be things that you have tons of flexibility on and things that you don't have very much. Like there are core things that are like, this has to be this way because we've already tied this uh, when talking to, you know, the cinematics team about this thing or whatever, or budget has been allocated for this large thing to happen. And if we get rid of that, then budget changes like that stuff's all very high level. But um, yeah, it depends what it is. And I'm sure that there are things that I really care about a lot that I would like fight if somebody tried to get rid of it or take it away from me. But I think the, for the most part, it's maybe more collaborative than people um, think it is because everybody just wants to make a good game. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody just wants to make something that people will really like. And you trust the people that you're working with every day to also feel that way and not to be precious. Because when it comes out, nobody knows what you did. Mm -hmm. uh they say like you know the, the writing term like that it can be hard to kill your darlings but nobody knows what you did or didn't do who cares if it gets cut but i don't think there's any benefit to having ego in there and again i'm sure those people exist in the industry but uh, my experiences have all been very collaborative and very like you know you could tell a director you don't like their idea um and they'd be like interesting why not shut up <laughs> um, but well, again, I'm sure it depends on the director. <laughs> do, you, do you find that there's ever been, like you said, that no one really understands who did what part in a game because the fandom for some of those games can be uh, aggressive, to put it lightly. People take it, take their things very passionately. If there is a title that comes out that they don't enjoy, is is that something that you ever find that they go after like the writing team or is it just they go after the studios themselves? Like how could Activision do this to us? I mean, I'm actively aware that if there are things in god of war ragnarok that people don't like i will get blamed for it like i 100 percent know that even if i had nothing to do with it because i already have been um mm -hmm. there have already been things in trailers that people have been like i fucking blame a lot of peers for this. <laughs> like, I literally nothing to do with that um so i think like generic answer is in a lot of cases they target the people who are the most visible uh or they'll target potentially 
women, um, minorities, depending on the person. That's not to say all gamers do that. I don't think like that. I feel like that's fair, but there are certainly some people who will target me because I'm a woman. Um, <laughs> I've had like some comments where people are like, oh, you're going to make Kratos gay because of course you are. I'm like, yeah, that's <laughs> that's me coming in pushing the gay agenda. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I don't I don't feel like it necessarily is going to go to the whole writers team. It's all it's just going to go to whoever's most visible, really, which, yeah, it's going to be a fun time for me. <laughs> how how is the uh, the representation of women in video game writing? Is it like other areas where it's just dramatically uh, underrepresented or is it becoming better? What, what would you? Hmm. I actually feel like of all the writers rooms that I've been in, I'd never been in one that didn't have um, women in it. Uh, a lot That's of good. my meetings right now are majority women. Um, so yeah, I would say writing is a, is an area that women tend to gravitate towards. So thus, yeah, there are a lot of women writing video games. It's, wow. It's, it feels pretty good to me. So all the all the right wing pop culture detectives who are really upset that uh, women are destroying video games. There's actually truth to the conspiracy. One hundred percent correct. Yes. Wow, there you, you heard <laughs> Again, it here first. I'm glad <laughs> the agenda is here. <laughs> um, has it? So in other areas, I guess in video games, there's obviously been a problem for women to kind of expand into because it's just been so predominant predominated by men. I guess would this be one of the few examples where you could see that this is uh, a a better point of entry for maybe women who are trying to explore or get into the field itself probably i mean um even in media i feel like you so often see female writers so that representation is there like it's it's a known thing that women are stereotyped to do so thus you're probably challenged less than you are if you're a programmer or something uh but santa monica studio is you know we have a, a women at playstation division that's super supportive and um the studio is actually run by technically two women um so there are a lot of and it's been that way for a really long time um, there are a lot of women at at the studio, and I feel like it's every everyone's very accepting of of all ilk of people for sure. Uh, there from from my experience at the very least. Um, but there, yeah, there are loads of women doing programming as well, and I feel like maybe sometimes part of the problem is like you don't necessarily see them as visibly because for them to be more visible, in theory, could increase harassment, and it's just scary to get into. Um, but I think the whole industry is like as it's becoming more and more acceptable for women to even play video games like i was still on the cusp of getting picked on about that as a kid more from girls though like i feel like girls made fun of me in school more than boys did boys didn't care that i played video games um girls were like i don't care (laughs) stop talking to me about dead rising which is the thing that actually (laughs) happened uh a girl i was friends with was like i just don't fucking care you have to stop talking to me about this and i was like that's fair i should pick who I talk to about my interest in Dead Rising right now. Uh, but that's certainly going away, so I feel like the whole thing's just just going to change. It's getting easier, and I've been in the industry for 10 years, and it went from people like not believing I played video games at all to mm. now I don't feel like people say that. People like attack me for how I feel about them, but I very rarely have people accuse me of not playing video games, and that's a huge shift just in the 10 years that I've been in the industry. I guess that's, that's progress in one way. Um... I was going to ask, because a lot of people obviously in the AAA game, you don't have to respond at all about Santa Monica, but to say other game studios, you always hear about things like the crunch, for example, and how workers are having to be pushed uh, to the brim to make deadlines. Does that impact the writers as well? And if so, how? For sure. Um, again, I've, I've actually not worked crunch, so I, I can't, at, at any game I've worked on, so I can't speak to this from any of my own experiences. Um, but yeah, you can 100% have crunch uh, as a writer, and I think that a lot of that would actually this is sort of a guess more than anything come from a triple A video game or at least a big video game. Uh, so many moving parts, like just 
a tremendous amount of things that are changing and a team has accomplished one thing and another one has done another thing and you come together and you try to make the thing work. It's a mess. Um, and crunch for writers, I think, could probably come from cinematic having to be cut. Um, we're like, okay, the game is now too big. Uh, we have to cut this cinematic. So in order to balance that out, the writers are going to have to fill the holes that's created by that cinematic being cut or, or changes to the story. Like, this couldn't happen. It was too complicated to program. We couldn't make the gameplay work in this section. So the writing has to adapt to that piece being gone. Um, and that's part of the job is being super adapt- adaptive and, and you know, reacting to the the changes of this whole, like I said, digital broken machine sort of slowly coming together in scrappy bits and pieces. Because um, game development is not glamorous, and I think anybody who works in the industry is like very open about that. Like it's just broken so much of the time, and the fact that it ever is not is a miracle, not the other way around. Um, but yeah, that that's that's definitely a, a big one. Is that the writers have to be really adaptive really quickly to service other teams for sure. Are the writers uh, who work in that industry are they exclusive to each company they work for, or do they also write for other mediums? Like, would you also be a TV writer or a movie writer, or are you allowed to freelance, or is it that you have to work specifically for the company you work for? Depends on your contract. Um, I personally, uh, because I can't be actually employed like a regular full time employee because of my visa, um, I it, that gives me more contractual freedom. Um, so like there are some writers at Sony who would not be able to talk to you right now at all without asking. I don't have to do that because technically they don't have ownership of me in that way because of my visa, um, which is, is, uh, ups and downs to that for sure. Um, but yeah, it depends on the industry. So like I, oh, sorry, the company, I, I could write other video games right now if I wanted to. I think that that would be, um, exhausting. I have done a little bit of work on some indie games actually, since I've been working in SMS, but very little because it would be very tiring and. It's also like when you're writing something, any any medium, um, even like some of the TV stuff that I've worked on before, if you care about it, you you just care so much about it that it can be hard to think about anything else. Uh, you get so into the one thing that you're writing that can be difficult to think about other things in the same level of depth. So I don't know that many people would want to, but yeah, I imagine that some companies are okay with it and some are strictly not okay with it. Um, there are writers on my team who've come exclusively from TV who didn't have games experience. And I think that there's like a lot of fresh perspective that comes with that, uh, where I was told even in my interviews that they considered it an asset that I know so much about video games or played so many video games because then that like works with other people on the team. And I do not have TV experience, barely watch any TV. Um, so there are all these like different references and, and, you know, pop culture references that we can pull from, from different people. Um, but yeah, I, I would say that a lot of, from the the writers that I know super well, I feel like a lot of video game writers have also worked on comics. I feel like that's really common okay. for some reason. Um, but you can obviously go from working on TV to working on a video game. Uh, happened with The Last of Us Part Two, and then you know some of those writers are now going to work on uh, The Last of Us TV show. So yeah, it it, it crosses. The the disciplines are not that different. Um, I would think that writing video games is probably off putting to. A lot of writers, because the credits uh, can be really slow, you know, it can take three years to make something, uh, whereas TV, it's can be way faster than that. So I don't know if too many TV writers are like jumping at the bit to get in video games. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's writing. Uh, that was definitely a thing that happened when I first joined the studio. People were like, most of your experience is journalism. That's completely different kind of writing. And I'd be like, it's not, though. Like, <laughs> it's totally not. Um, there are people from like studios with games that you love, like Hades. Um, you know, that whole studio was was effectively founded or, or written by uh, people who came from a journalism background. The the 
writing's pretty cross-disciplinary, I think. Speaking of which, like, a lot of the modern AAA games now seem to really become more and more cinematic, or at least people are expecting them to, whether or not they can execute it properly, right? Like The Last of Us, Last of Us 2, for example, feeling a lot more like uh, a film experience than simply a video game one. Do you feel the pressure having to work in that environment to kind of adapt that new uh, level of, I don't know, cinematic quality when it comes to video game storytelling? Because you come from a background, clearly, of someone who was obsessed and knows a lot about the video game uh, history, right? But to have to combine that with what people are expecting from AAA games these days. I feel like uh, I would try not to think about those expectations too much. Like I said, I just want to make a good video game. And that applies to any of the games that I've worked on. It's like, I just want to do my job well and write what I'm told to write (laughs) and do it well and come up with ideas and help other people with their ideas. And just like in the moment make sure that I'm doing my best to make something good. Um, I I don't feel like I try to think about, like, the expectation, uh, because I also, you know, you'd you'd be limited working on a lot of games. This happened to me a little bit more with some of the indie stuff that I've done, where you can pitch something, and they're like, that's way too expensive. There's just no way that we can afford to do that. I'm like, oh, we can't afford to animate a dragon? Good to know. (laughs) Um, So you you can be restricted by, like, the epic of things based on... um, budget that that stuff can be really expensive anything with four legs is inherently more expensive uh as an example it's just hard to animate they can't do it but yeah i don't know i I try not to think about expectation or scale i just try to think about like writing a a good story or making interesting characters more than anything that would be way too stressful like as soon as you start thinking like oh how many million people could play this oh no Uh, (laughs) that seems like a bad idea um Okay, so if you're pushing yourself away from that and you're just trying to concentrate on the game, do you also find that what is happening to the video game industry itself, because you're actually working for it, do you pay attention to uh, either controversies or like the way mobile games took over or now NFTs are getting into games? Like, Does that aspect and all the drama that surrounds the industry itself, do you push that out of your head as well? Or, or do you kind of stay in tune to it while it's happening? I'm separate, you know? Um, so feel very lucky to work at a Sony first-party studio because, from my perception, they are not pushing NFTs, microtransactions, none of that kind of stuff. They really just want to make very good video games um, because that's how you sell PlayStations, I guess. Um, so those conversations still happen, and I feel like that's a separate part of my brain. So, like, my day job is is video game writer, and that's the stuff I do from 9 to 6 every day. And then the content creator side of me is on the other side of that. And that's where I absorb all of that information and think about that stuff. And I feel like I have a really good job of separating the two of them, of not thinking about them in the same breath, really. So, like, the content creator side of me is, like, thinking about NFTs and microtransactions and exploitative practices or, or, um, you know, I have real issues with certain games who are uh, or studios that are intentionally trying to, wouldn't be the studios, to be fair, it would be publishers, trying to make games more addictive so that you are addicted to a certain feedback loop of a certain game so that that's all you want to play. Uh, I think there are real problems there worth exploring. But yeah, I, I have it very separate in my head from what I do every day. That said, I would be uncomfortable if uh, an exec came to me at any any game that i would ever work on and be like we need to figure out a way to write this so that you know it's uh more advantageous for us to have microtransactions in it and i don't doubt that a lot of devs have to deal with that and confront that and probably don't want to do it or in some cases do want to do it um it would depend on the person but i I don't even know how i would respond to like having to put in some 
practices I can consider to be occasionally predatory. I feel like I would have a lot of trouble with that. I guess it, it when it's your job, you just kind of got to do it. And that's probably the stance that a lot of devs have. So you don't really have a say and you can't just run away from that kind of thing forever. But um, yeah, it's not something that I have to think about at all working at um, Santa Monica Studio, nor a thing that I think any first party Sony game really has to worry about, which is awesome. Do you, does it worry you just... Uh... On the just as part of the broader industry, the fact that it does seem that there are certain companies that are gravitating towards, uh, you know, hyper monetizing microtransactions and or incorporating uh, cryptocurrency and NFTs into more mainstream platforms. For sure. Um, the thing that I get most concerned about most frequently as a gamer is uh, the loss of single-player video games. And it's not something that, like, is going to disappear anytime soon. Um, you know, the headlines that would suggest that are, are really just being clickbaity. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I grew up playing single-player games. They're what I want to work on. They're more interesting to me as a writer. Um, though, of course, multiplayer teams, you know, they have to work super hard, too. Um, but I, I don't want to lose that. And, you know... The NFT marketplace conversation, for example, is like, okay, well, if we were to implement them in a way that would make any sense, then it wouldn't just seem like blatant oh, theft right now. Yeah. It would have to be in games as service games. And um, so therefore, the more profitable NFTs get for publishers, the more games as service games you're going to get, which means the less single player games they are going to be making more and more games um, or rather less games, but putting more time into just one game. And then the competition doesn't become which of these, you know, 50 games a year do you buy uh, because you think it looks interesting? It becomes more of how do you allocate your time? And it's something that, you know, I know that Activision specifically has been working on for a really long time. So seeing the shift with Microsoft is actually seems like a positive where this is concerned. And this is all like publicly available information that they have in their uh, investor calls is trying to monetize the amount of hours that somebody spends, spends playing an individual game more effectively so they're like well if somebody goes and sees a movie and it's only two hours and they pay eleven dollars for a ticket why can't we get at least eleven dollars out of somebody who's played this game for 300 hours that's not fair we're being ripped off we need to monetize the individual minutes that they play more effectively and yeah with that comes games of service games um which is uh, a lot harder to tell a story in um I just like seeing like more variety every year. And I do worry that we head in a direction where somebody like Tencent just makes the, the metaverse game where everybody just gets sucked into it and doesn't want to play anything else. Um, that's a thing that I don't want. And that I think, you know, isn't unrealistic that that could happen somewhere in the future that we are all playing the ready player one style, just like one individual game that's sucking up all of our time because they've manipulated it to do that. And, I don't want that, but hopefully that's like 20, 30 years away. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like I'm totally with you because I've been hearing that like I'm I'm also someone who loves uh, like uh, single player games. And I've been hearing that argument, though, that they are going to die, especially AAA studios just won't have any time for them because why would they when these, you know, massive multiplayer games can generate more money? And then we'll get like, you know, the, the new Resident Evil Village come out and it's just one of the best games of the year, an absolute blast to play. So do do you as someone who works directly in that industry feel that that is really the only direction they're going to go in because I feel even Santa Monica Studios itself seems to still think that you know single player adventures can be uh, a, a profitable business model from the perspective of a, a game developer of their size. I'm putting on like my journalist hat to talk about this rather than my uh, Santa Monica Studio hat. Um, 
my perspective on that has always been, and I've never heard this from anybody internally. Um, I think somebody said the contrary on Twitter recently, but it's always been my perspective, is that Sony is still incentivized to make really, really good single-player AAA video games because they want to sell PlayStations. So what they're selling is not the monetized hours of a video game, it's hardware. I think the same applies to Nintendo. Obviously, Microsoft has a different approach because of Game Pass. They are doing something very different. Um, and that's why I feel like so many Sony first-party releases and Nintendo first-party releases are so good uh, is because they need you to buy their hardware to play the thing. Um, and then from there, you know, you become a PlayStation Plus subscriber and every game that you buy on PSN, uh, Sony gets a 30% cut. So you just generate revenue for them all the time. Um, and, and I think that the upside of exclusivity where that's concerned um, is that we are going to keep getting really, really, really good single-player games from those studios unless they start chasing Game Pass and then things changes. That's not to say that I don't think Xbox makes great games, too. Like, I'm super excited about Hellblade 2. I love Psychonauts 2. Um, I've always been a fan of Sea of Thieves. They, they make great games as well. Super excited about Fable. Uh, but the Game Pass model means something different, for sure. It's a different approach to to development. So, yeah, I think you're pretty much always safe with uh, PlayStation and Nintendo unless they change their strategies anytime soon. Even with the new addition of them now porting major uh, titles to PC? Yeah, uh, in in my head, again, this is like content creator hat, not not Sony hat. Um, because it's happening a year later, I don't mm. think it matters. I think because it's still happening way after the fact and people like don't want to miss out on playing it day and date and getting it like day one, there's still so much of a push for you to try to get a PlayStation from that, basically. Um, so I don't feel like that actually takes away. I, I feel like that's just great. Like, I want more people to be able to play more video games. Generally, like, I'd prefer if exclusivity didn't exist, but then I worry that we'd lose the quality. So um, there's, that's the upside to it. But I'm happy to to have PC players playing games that have previously been on consoles. That's awesome. How do you feel about the um, the kind of rise and blossoming of the indie game scene, especially that came kind of at the face of AAA game studios and maybe some of their more predatory practices and suddenly becoming this entirely new like field? Like not that sorry that it's new, but like smaller game studios producing these incredible like single player adventures. There's a lot of like Metroidvania games, all that kind of stuff. Do you feel that that is is going to also continue to thrive uh, in direct opposition to the AAA game studios who are pumping out the, the titles that everyone knows and loves? That space is super interesting because it keeps changing. So, like, for example, uh, uh, I, I love uh, the indie space. My my game of the year last year was Inscription. But that is technically Devolver Digital, which means it was published. So is it an indie? I, I feel like I get so caught up on, like, what indie even means anymore. Because if somebody, like, a game like Journey was indie game-ish but was published by Sony. So is it an indie game? Like, I don't even know what that term means anymore. Um, like I loved Inscription so much and would feel like in my head it's indie, but it's still published by Devolver Digital, so <laughs> it's, it's super confusing. Um, and I feel like that's a, a thing that's shifting in that space is like less self-published indies for sure. We are getting more uh, uh, published indies by these like middle like double A studios. Um, I don't even I, yeah I don't even know what indie means anymore. I definitely don't think they're going anywhere though. Um, I think that. There are too many people, even students, who like just want to make something cool and often do and don't have the constraints of working in AAA where they can take the time and, and as much time as they want. They can take like six years to make something if they want to. And uh, I hope they don't go anywhere. But yeah, I don't, I don't see them going anywhere either because that's a really good way for Game Pass to pad its library. You have more studios making indie games. That's awesome. 
um, for Sony to have a more interesting catalog of smaller things throughout the year. Obviously, Nintendo, uh, loads of indie games have done super well on the Switch eShop. So I think that we need those because AAA makes takes so long to make games mm-hmm. that you need to have like your nice little indies uh, in the middle. And, and that industry does such cool stuff. Well, that side of the industry does stuff, such cool stuff. Um, like I also played Unpacking last year, which is like such an unexpectedly pleasant indie game that was funded by the Australian government in part, um, which, you know, again, that's a that's a pretty common approach for a lot of indies is, is to get funding elsewhere. Uh, which is awesome, um, and that's something that you could just never make in the AAA space. So, yeah, I think there's too many, too many uh, people wanting to make smaller and more unique games that they're not going to go anywhere. And there's benefit for the big publishers as well. Like I, I love indies; I mean, long may they live. <laughs> they're awesome. Um, do you think Game Pass is kind of where the future of the industry will go? In that there's going to be like just a Netflix alternative. That's pretty much what Game Pass feels mm. like to me. It's like the Netflix of video games, right? You pay ten bucks a month and you get a hundred different titles, more than anyone can play in a month. Um, is that going to be something that is emulated by PS Plus by Nintendo? Uh, is is that the future of video games? I hope not. Um, in that. I love Game Pass. You know, I use Game Pass. I think it's great value. Um, but the minute that everybody's doing the same thing, I feel like we get less innovation just as a result of that. So uh, I think that Microsoft's play is actually to compete with Google and Apple, not to compete with PlayStation and Nintendo. I think that they're trying to do something quite different. Um, and I'm glad that they are. I hope that not everybody does, but I mean, there's a world where we could end up the same way that the TV streaming services are right now. Um, and, and I think the appeal of that is passive income, but it's a lot of people giving you money for things they aren't even necessarily touching. Mm-hmm. I think they're making millions now. I think just, I don't remember what it was. They just released the stats of how many subscribers that they have. Like it's super profitable, but then video games are also really expensive to make. So it's so new that it's hard to see right now how it's going to play out in the long term. Um, but my my definite hope is that everybody continues to do different things. I like that Nintendo get very innovative with their hardware and mm. make a very specific style of of game. I like taking my Switch on a plane. <laughs> I like that I can use it. I don't have to be connected to the internet with a subscription service to play anything. Um, and again, I love the blockbusters that PlayStation make. I'm I'm super excited for the New Horizon next month. I think Gorilla's doing fantastic stuff there. Um, loved Ghost of Tsushima and the director's cut. And I just, I want them all to keep doing different stuff so that like as a gamer who has every platform, I get different stuff. Uh, but that's probably me being greedy. Like realistically, I don't know. The, the industry has to go where the money is. And I don't know where that is right now, but that's where it'll go. Yeah. Um, are you able to wear your journalist hat to talk a little bit about Activision Blizzard or would you rather just leave that topic off? Cool. Um, a, I, I wanted to first ask about Within the industry itself, was there a lot of knowledge of Activision Blizzard and everything that was taking place there um, behind the scenes kind of idea before this was becoming uh, the public scandal that it was? Was it kind of like a rumor that was talked about into um, do you think the acquisition by Microsoft is that necessarily uh, something that could either save those companies or is it just kind of like the way Disney is trying to inhale every other form of media ever known, right? <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's Microsoft trying to become the next Disney in the video game world. GG Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so first, I you know have had loads of friends at Activision Blizzard who I knew um, for some of those people, this doesn't apply to everybody, 
while like very stressed a lot of the time. I had no idea about any of the like more serious allegations, uh, anything about sexual harassment or sexual assault. And there are two sides to that. The first is that like it's so common in the games industry that I feel like people probably didn't feel a need to talk about it. Uh, that was one of my like gut reactions to seeing that news, um, you know, flood my Twitter timeline was people being like shocked about it. And I was like, well, this is kind of part of the course. This is so common um, that it was really unsurprising in a way that's obviously very gross, but that leads me to think maybe people didn't talk about it as much because it was happening at so many studios. Um, so no, I'd never heard of any of the like sexual harassment or sexual assault claims. The other side of that is that I imagine a lot of the people who worked there hadn't either. Um, it's scary to talk about that shit, you know, like it, it's really terrifying to try to come forward, especially in the face of like a culture where even if you know that certain people would care, they would maybe have to pretend that they didn't because that's how their boss feels and they need to impress that person. And it just like, there's a million reasons why I feel like it probably wasn't spoken about that extensively, uh, which is disgusting. But um, yeah, I don't feel like there were even rumors of it that I had ever heard. I didn't, I didn't know about any of it really um i just knew that people who i knew who worked there were like really stressed all the time <laughs> um which again also not that uncommon second is microsoft trying to become disney um no i think that microsoft is just trying to to focus on on game pass i don't think there's necessarily a threat of microsoft buying up every studio and the thing that i've been thinking about you know th that i feel like people aren't talking about is the amount that tencent has done that uh Tencent is currently the biggest company in terms of revenue in the games industry, um, Chinese company. And they have some really bad practices um, that I'm almost like even like weird about speaking about because I know that Tencent can like treat people pretty poorly for talking about it uh, in a way that's kind of scary. Um, like they, I, I guess I should say like allegedly or from what I have heard, because uh, mm -hmm. please don't sue me for saying this, um, <laughs> will buy a studio and then effectively steal their code and then just like replicate their games um and there are some studios that like can be bought by tencent or, or get shares from tencent that have to like give over their source code oh. and as a result of that become worthless to every other publisher going forward because then anyone can just tencent again tencent could at any point just replicate everything that you've made um, and they do do it in a way that's really strange. So I feel like they're, they, they are the biggest. They're the ones that I look at as like trying to chase a monopoly and, and owning the industry. Um, they also have like a bunch of problematic shit. I have a friend who had a film that was offered to be uh, made by Tencent or funded by Tencent. And they were like, no black people, <laughs> bigger tits. Wait, what? Uh, yeah yeah like a lot of like rules that they have that <laughs> okay yeah um that i think also has had a hand in you know some triple a games again i don't want to speak on any of this because i'm so worried about getting sued by tencent but oh this is what i've heard rumors not sure if any of this is true um but you know like even games that are out where they were like yeah that character needs to have bigger tits or you need to make a skin lighter type shit um wow that Again, I know that more of the film industry, um, and that's outside of content that's like, no ghosts. They have just like weird rules like that. But I think we should be way more concerned about Tencent than we should be uh, about Microsoft. Um, and then even then, the second biggest company in terms of revenue, I believe, is still Sony and then Microsoft. And then we've got Apple. Um, so like, you know, th these big studio acquisitions, in some cases, I think they're awesome. 
Uh, I think that buying a studio like Double Fine is great because Double Fine make really good games and now they have like more secure ongoing funding to continue to make awesome games. Um, I felt the same way about uh, forgetting the name, uh, Ninja Theory. Um, you know, I want Ninja Theory to keep making great games and I'm getting acquired by a, a, a big publisher is, is awesome. Um, in terms of Activision Blizzard, I really hope that the acquisition can be better for all the employees there and can improve the culture and obviously get rid of Bobby Kotick. That sounds great. Mm-hmm. We'd really like that to happen. Um, even though it looks like he's going to get like 300 million regardless, which is awesome. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm not super worried about a monopoly with them right now, just because I, there are other companies I'm slightly more worried about. And it's something that you definitely don't ever want one company to own everything. I don't like it with Disney. I feel like a lot of their movies are really formulaic and, have the same act structure and the same sense of humor and play out in the same way that it kind of starts to feel stale. So you don't want it to happen, but I, I don't feel like Bethesda and Activision Blizzard are quite enough to get to that point. If they also bought Ubisoft and EA, I think that, that I would be in trouble. <laughs> Do you think um, there's a reason why no one speaks about Tencent? Because I'll completely agree with you. I, I was not aware of like any of the things you just brought up. And like for someone who follows that section of the news a lot, especially when it comes to like workers' rights involving like people who work in the video game industry, workers' rights for people who are trying to like uh, protest, like we interviewed a bunch of Activision uh, people who are unionizing in their drive and stuff. But oftentimes those are the companies that are pointed towards right it's like the big ones the eas uh you know the ones that where they have notorious uh bad practices to their employees but you, i've never heard someone criticize tencent before like i said i think people are afraid of them hmm. um but i think the biggest one is probably that they're overseas so because oh, okay. they're foreign um it less people understand less people know people who work there or don't have personal relationships with the people who work there they just like buy up half of Riot and then kind of disappear. So they're a little bit more mysterious. Um, so I think it's half-half. It's it's being afraid of them uh, because they have so much power over entertainment in the West in general. Again, also loads of films. Like Tencent are massive in a really scary way. Um, it's like this, this scary conglomerate that nobody really knows much about. Uh, but yeah, also because they're overseas. It's either that like people aren't taking them seriously because they're a Chinese company or because we don't have as much access to them and they don't have as much of a home base. So we just don't know people who work there the same way we do with every other studio. Oh, fair enough. Um, when it came to the Activision Blizzard, uh, one of the things I'd, I'd say one of the only positives that came out of it was uh, the fact that there was like a, a drive for unionization, some walkouts, and now there's a testers union apparently that is trying to get recognition from the larger company. Do you feel right now within the industry there is a concern push towards things like more unionization? Or I've even heard rumors about when companies do their their mass like firing of contract workers, they will band together and perhaps try form. I mean, like a worker co-op to start a whole new game company. Is is there like um, a lot of push towards that from uh, people in the industry and or uh, from like the journalistic aspect of things? I think no. I think that there should be. I, I unions are for the people. I personally am very pro-union. Unions seem great, um, but I. I don't really hear people talk about it super often internally inside of the industry. It seems like an idea that's floated that nobody necessarily knows how to do or execute on. Um, and yeah, I guess people are probably worried about union busting. Like I can't imagine that the Amazon game studios are pushing real hard on unions <laughs> considering Amazon's stance. 
So it definitely seems like a thing that would be beneficial, but it would also require like such a big industry shakeup because it is an industry that has a lot of people working a lot of overtime and not getting paid for it. Um, games that, you know, I know people who worked on games at EA who, what a thankless job, who like ended up in hospital because they, you know, the idea that Crunch is just like, oh, you worked a bit of overtime. Now, like people are like collapsing and going to hospital because they were so overworked and stressed and it's so Sorry. bad for you mentally in some cases that... Um, yeah, they take medical leave because they can't keep working anymore. Like, yeah, those people clearly need some intervention to help them. Like, that's it's wild that it operates that way. That's also seemingly the only way that some games can get out. And I think that, like, the discourse is is pretty negative where a lot of that stuff is concerned in terms of, like, why haven't you released this game yet? Where's the release date for this? Like, there's a lot of pressure from the public, which can also translate to pressure from stakeholders as well, just, like, going around in a circle of people getting angry. Um, and then the EA games come out and everyone hates them anyway. And you're like, cool, my friend had to go to hospital to make like any of that work. <laughs> and it's just like <laughs> so negative in this little bowl. And people like the quartering really help with that, I think. Um, very, very helpful for the unions. Uh, <laughs> and it's just it's it's difficult to figure out how to how to approach, I imagine. And I don't doubt that somebody will. But as it stands right now, I, I think that some of the union touting that I see journalists yell about on Twitter, I'm like, that is a tremendous privilege that you have, that you had the time to figure out how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. They seem great to me. I, I don't feel like it's a priority for a lot of people, though, just because it's probably unrealistic and seems difficult and, uh, yeah, would require a pretty big industry shift to make them work, and nobody knows how to do that. Fair enough. Um, it's funny you mentioned the quartering, because one of the last things I wanted to talk to you about is obviously uh, him and I guess the neckbeards online are, you know, the kind of people the two of us have battled quite a bit in terms of uh, them being upset about representation and, and stuff of that nature, uh, and that video games may be going the way of films and being too woke for their consumption or stuff of that nature. But as someone who uh, actually works in the industry itself, do you feel that the problem of representation in video games is being properly addressed? And do you think that uh, it is uh, a more welcoming environment for people who might want to get into the industry who happen to not be cis white males kind of thing? I don't like I, I'm a I'm a white woman. I'm still second, you know, like, I feel like it's, I'm not <laughs> On like the a great person, you know, to be like, yeah, representation's doing great. Like, Okay, white girl. Um, <laughs> there are people who have it much harder than I do, uh, and I don't want to like even pretend that I can say no. They're they're fine because the white women are fine, you know. Um, not answer. that they are. Uh, <laughs> just like I, I don't know how to, how to tackle that appropriately. I feel like the the thing again about that discourse that's very confusing is like people being like you're getting pressure to make it more woke and it's like no the people who make these games just like want to do this they just want to they 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 want to work with different people and more diverse teams because having especially as a writer having a diverse team of people to pull ideas from is way more interesting like you get better ideas when you don't have a similar background or a similar upbringing um and i think like that even comes from you know, me being from a different country, even in a small way, can can provide like a, well, I have this perspective because I came from this different place. And that's obviously way, way, way richer when it comes to people of different ethnicities and backgrounds um, in every facet. So I think it's like people in the industry just like want to tell more interesting stories. And that comes with working with more diverse people. Uh, there's no like big publisher pressure to be like you must hire more black people it's like well that person was qualified and is interesting 
we want to work with them. It's not it's mm-hmm. this like weird bogeyman of like this like woke overlord that I feel like they reference all the time. That I'm like, no, they just fucking wanted to do that. <laughs> it's so strange. Um, that yeah, I think people assume that some of their favorite game studios don't have people wanting to make that kind of content in them. I'm like, of course they do. So yeah, I think that it, it's the industry's been around for a long enough time that telling those different stories with different backgrounds is is just becoming like more and more important to tell different stories um and i definitely feel like it's it's progressing in a way where people are trying harder and and that's a big thing that always comes down to part of that conversation of like this person was hired for this diversity reason like why are you trying to tell people on twitter to to apply especially if they're a person of color and it's it's one thing that i think that still needs a lot of work is making things seem more welcoming for people to actually apply for jobs. That's the thing that I don't think has progressed uh, as much as the industry would like, is it's still scary to apply for a job at a game studio if you know that the people who work there don't look like you. And I think that can even happen in a way where it's like, well, I haven't really uh, seen myself represented in that space, so I don't feel like I belong. And I think that um, it's not about hiring people who aren't good at the job. Of course, you are always going to end up hiring the most qualified person. Like That happened when I worked at IGN as well. I do think that um, recruiters need to do a better job of trying to get more diverse applicants, though. You're still always going to hire the person who's most qualified regardless of what they look like. Uh, But you do need to put more work into trying to make different people feel more comfortable applying or getting those applications or approaching them or trying to poach them from different places. Um, Cause that's definitely something that I don't think the industry's figured out yet, but again, white woman. <laughs> well, okay. I'm, I'm right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's a really good answer. The other thing I wanted to ask in regards to that though, is uh, I guess during the, like the feminist frequencies slash kind of like gamer gate uh, explosion of this topic, there was the problem in prior video games, which were predominantly obviously written and coded and, and designed by men of being hyper-focused perhaps on only having women as these like hyper-sexualized characters. And now I feel mm-hmm. like we have come a really long way where you were just mentioning a game like Event Horizon, for example, that has a very, uh, you know, uh, positive, uh, powerful, uh, you know, female protagonist that isn't directly concerned exclusively with like their sexuality being the only character mm-hmm. trait that you think about. And at the same time, there seems to be uh, an area open for characters that are still sexualized, such as like the vampire mummy in um, the new Resident Evil game, right? Something that no one was really that questionable about. But do you feel like that has kind of evolved in in a, in a positive route since the the mass exposure of it, or do you think there is still a very big problem with um, you know female game characters being predominantly sexual characters rather than anything else i can only speak for myself here and i don't know if my take is like a super common one on this um so i play video games my whole life and have never had a problem with sexy female video game characters um and i feel like part of that conversation i find to be a little bit exhausting in terms of like i don't know it's confusing to me that some of it is like we must have our female video game characters to to dress this way to pass a test but then at the same breath, those people would be like, women, dress however you want in real life. So mm-hmm. it's it's confusing to me. It's like, well, am I allowed to dress however I want or must I dress this way to to be approved? Um, but what drives me nuts and a thing that I've always hated, it's not sexy video game characters. Totally cool with that. And this is why Lady D, I think, was so beloved, is that they have to also be interesting. Mm-hmm. And that was certainly a thing that I think the industry was very bad at, that the industry has gotten better at is making sexy video game characters where their whole identity is also just being sexy video game character. So boring. It's so boring and can be really grating. There used to be so many villains that were just like a hot chick who would 
just flirt with you. And I, when I was playing those, even as a teenager, um, when, you know, I had some like dumb Tumblr posts about how I thought feminism was stupid because I spent too much time on 4chan. And I've <laughs> since learned better. Um, where even then I was like, this is clearly not made for me and it's weird because I was just so acutely aware that it was written as a woman flirting with the straight man playing the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that could be super off-putting. So I love characters like Bayonetta, right? Super sexualized. She's, she's There's no question about the way that sh- she's dressed, but she's also really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I feel like that's the thing that like I I think has come a long way and that I care more about is not acting like all of our female video game characters need to be dressed a certain way or need to look a certain way or have to be covered up in a certain way. It's more that they have to just be interesting characters. I feel like like I don't like the the trope of badass female character where she's got the side of her head is shaved and in a cutscene she's like boxing or sharpening a knife. I'm like, I get that <laughs> what you're trying to do there is like you're trying to create a strong female character, but it ends up in the same place which is not a fucking character. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like one and the same to me uh where yeah i i look i don't want every every video game character to be sexy male gazy that's weird um but i don't want them to all look the same either and i don't want them to all dress the same and i don't want like the video games that i play to be like if you look sexy then you suck <laughs> you prefer mm. to be it somewhere in the middle um just make the characters interesting and compelling and have real struggles and relatable beats it's i think that's probably that i'm a writer so my perspective is coming from that area but yeah that's certainly uh improving i think um and has over the last 10 years especially but i don't know if you want someone who's super slutty i'm cool with that too just don't make them like a walking innuendo i've got uh, my chat lighting me up for good reason apparently i said event horizon instead of horizon zero dawn uh you're completely correct there is no event <laughs> horizon, that, horizon video game coming out which would be that would be pretty based it was a it was a scary fun movie <laughs> um I I know that uh, we've only got a few minutes left because we've got a lot of other uh, events and interviews to do. Do you mind if I ask you just a couple questions from the chat? They've been uh, adding me a lot of oh. things that they want to ask you. Um, one of the first questions that I received, and I've had it a couple times now, is can you talk a little bit about being LGBTQ plus in the industry and what that was like? Yeah, so I've been like not straight my whole life, and I've known that my whole life. Um, and... It has never been a struggle for me, which makes it a complicated thing to talk about. I've never had any problem with it. My family has kind of always known and never cared. and um, It's never been an issue. And thus, I feel like most people just don't know. <laughs> and I have to, like, point it out if it comes up or something. So uh, the reception when I, I I had never hidden it. I have YouTube videos dating back 10 years where I talk about being attracted to women um, and men and everything everything else. I don't, I don't care what you identify as. Um, and it, it like it felt like I never hit it, but I decided to post about it on Twitter maybe two years ago after talking to a couple of friends in that community who were like, because you haven't publicly spoken about this, people don't know. And if they see you as successful or they look up to you, I think it would be really helpful if you did. So I went back and forth with a bunch of people and was like, this feels performative and strange because it's not something that I feel like I like have I personally have needed to write a twit longer about. Uh but it, yeah, it, it just came down to everybody I asked being like, no, you could really help people if you do this. You could make people more comfortable coming out or like with their identities. So I posted something. And um, yeah, I mean, there was some like shitheads on the internet who didn't like it, but I didn't I didn't care. Um, so I would say that it's not something I've ever felt in any way discluded for in the games industry whatsoever. Um, the reception for me has always been super nice and and supportive and friendly. 
that's uh, pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. um, so this one might be a little bit more specific, but I have a question I've always wanted to ask. Uh, you spoke very highly of the first Deadly Premonition game and introduced me to it, but with the second game having come out two years ago, what would you have done or changed with the game if you wrote it? With Deadly Premonition, the first one or the second one? I believe the second one. What would I change in Deadly Premonition 2? My God. Very specific. Uh, okay. To get, like, pretty harsh on it, the entire first hour of that game sort of sucks. Um, I think the writing in Deadly Premonition is very good, and people would argue that because it's really weird, but it's good. The characters are super consistent. You understand their struggles. Uh, they're just very strange. The first hour of Deadly Premonition is basically, like, a... a visual novel like it's it's so weird and on rails that i just want to cut that whole thing like get me straight to the weird skateboarding part with the strange alligator figure uh just jump right to that because that's the chaos that i love deadly permission for it's uh, truly truly one of the best and worst video game series in 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 history (laughs) (laughs) um i'll end with uh with an easy one uh what were the best and worst titles of 2021 in your gaming opinion so my favorite game of 2021 uh, was Inscription, as said. Um, I also really liked Deathloop and Psychonauts. Uh, I'm going to forget things now. When I'm trying to think about games I didn't like that came out last year. Um, I didn't, I wasn't a huge fan of the gunk. I did finish it of, of games that I was like interested in that I played. I felt like the, the um, and, and one of my friends voices the lead character of that game. And that was awesome to see. But I felt like... Um, the gameplay loop was a lot simpler than I expected. Not a ton um, grabbed me there. If it had been longer, I wouldn't have committed to finishing it, I don't think. But because it was short, I was like, yeah, it's simple. It's pleasant. It's cool. I'll play it. I think of what else I played last year that I wasn't a huge fan of. Like the most recent AAA game that I really did not like was Avengers. Um, I was just not into that in any facet, and I guess that's ongoing, and I did try it again last year after an update and still had, like, major problems with it and so many bugs on the PC build. It was just, like, at one point it bricked my PC. I had to unplug my PC from the power outlet (laughs) because that (laughs) game just could not function on my PC. Um, I'm sure it wasn't easy to make, though. You know, that's got to be hard to make, and I generally love that studio. I'm trying to think of, like, what else came out last year? What else came out? Uh... I didn't know Psychonauts 2 came out last year. I thought that was a 2019 release. Um, no, that definitely came out last that was, year. That yeah, was last year. Um, uh, well, I guess Village I was know. another big title that came out last year as well. Loved it. Huge yeah. fan. Thought it was great. They do they do this thing with Resident Evil, though, that Village didn't do as bad as the previous game did, where the end of the game gets so action-y that I miss some of the earlier parts. I mean, mm-hmm. they've done that for ages, actually. It's like the Resident Evil formula, almost. Um, and it, like, kind of loses me towards the end when I'm, like, flying in a tank. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm always like, all right, can I go back to the houses? <laughs> like, I just prefer those bits. I still really liked it, though. I thought it was dope. Um, um, oh, actually, can, can, I, can I ask you just one more quick question? Because you actually sure. might have an insight to this, and this is something that I'm very passionate about. Will we ever see a Silent Hills? Do you think we'll ever see either what that game was supposed to be or another Silent Hill? Or is Konami perpetually going to be a pachinko machine maker and they'll never give away the license? Konami will never do it, but they might sell it. I wouldn't okay. say no to Konami selling it. And I've thought about this as like, you know, since I started working at SMS, other studios have tried to poach me and I've always like, absolutely not. There's no way. The only thing you could poach me on is Silent Hills. If I wow. had the opportunity to go write Silent Hills, I 100% would be like, 
okay, <laughs> let's do that. <laughs> yeah. um, but part of it is that, like, I don't know that I necessarily want it because PT is so good. I yeah. think PT is one of the lo- the best games of last generation, even though it's not a game, right? Yeah, it's fucking incredible. And the idea that the loss of Silent Hill as a franchise ends on this weird demo that you didn't know was Silent Hill until the end of it, that was made in partnership with Guillermo del Toro, that you can only get certain ways now and is only available on, on certain people's platforms and was otherwise like mysteriously delisted and is no longer referenced is like kind of beautiful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's very if that's it, that's kind of cool. Um, we could let somebody else overtake the, the survival horror space. I'm super excited about the new Alan Wake. Cause I feel like remedy has a lot of like the same kind of approach to writing that, that silent hill does. Like I love silent hill too. Um, I think there's a world where Konami sells it. To make a bunch of money because clearly they like that <laughs> i also wouldn't hate it if we never saw another silent hill solely because i think the ending is so silent hill-esque it's kind of cool well well said um do you have a charity event coming up you always have so many charity streams and fundraisers do you have another big one that we could promote I do. All of my streams are for charity. Um, Right now, I am raising money for the people who lost their homes in Boulder, Colorado. Um, I'm actually not doing any more streams for the rest of this month because I really want to finish the screenplay that I was writing. So I was like, I need to stop streaming so I can do more writing. Um, But the link is like in my Instagram bio. I need to be able to find it on my Tiltify page just in general. Um, Yeah, because I went to Colorado uh, over the Christmas break. And happened to be there while the fires were there and wanted to do something, try to help out um, and met people who lost their homes, like at, you know, a grocery store buying food. And, and the person in front of me was like, yeah, we just had to buy some stuff because our whole house burned down. And you're like, oh, cool. Wow. That happened a couple of times. So that's what I'm currently trying to raise money for this month to, to help some people out. So, yeah, if you'd like to donate, that would be awesome. And they can find Jat at uh, twitch.tv slash uh, Charizard, spelt the right way. Charlanazard, Ch- yes. Charlanazard, sorry. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alana, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me and uh, letting me uh, ask all these wild questions. Because it's really cool finally hearing from someone who's like on the inside uh, of all this stuff. Yeah, sure. I, I'm always happy to talk about video games. It's my favorite thing. So anytime. Oh, one last thing. Someone wants to know what your favorite Pokemon is. I'm, I'm going to guess I know what it is, but. It's actually Gyarados. Oh, twist. Twist. I know. There you go, Cervantes. Actually twist Gyarados, you. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have guessed? <laughs> well, thank you so much, Lana. I appreciate it. Take it easy. Cool. Thanks so much for having me. Bye. Everyone, that was the incredible Alana Pierce. Uh, every single one of you should probably go do that thing where you you go over to you go over to Twitter or you, you go over to Twitch and and then you you go subscribe and uh, you 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 follow and also if you can if you have a dollar to spare go participate in that charity stream coming up because that would be amazing uh, that was uh, that was awesome that was awesome learning so much stuff um, at least I managed to count it at the end of it uh, I'll put the whole thing up on on the the YouTube's or on the podcast if if you want to have it in your your ear pleasure uh, and go follow and sub to uh, Alana because she's, uh, she's very based um the two of us i think the first time i ever uh hung out with her online was uh the aoc well. game and then she's i've subsequently seen her dunking on uh the quartering and other neck neck beards on a regular basis uh so like you know she's uh she's dope so please go go follow her uh go watch uh, her stuff so you've just been listening to an episode of The Surf Times. And if you enjoy it and want to see The Surf Times, you can go to wearesurfs.com or watch the live shows at thesurfs.tv.
And also everywhere social media is sold. Basically, thesurfs.tv, you'll find us there. Twitter.com slash thesurfstv, for example. It would also help us out tremendously if you could leave a good review of this podcast if you enjoyed it, either on, I don't know, iTunes or wherever you're podcasting. Apparently it does help. And yeah, we hope to see you soon. To our gods, Xander Corvus and Peyton L. Just, we beseech thee to smite down our enemies. To our monarch, Tom Spiker, we are but your humble court jesters here to amuse you. To our lords, Trevor R., we give thanks for this spit of land for us to eke out this meager existence. To our knights, Merid, Cheryl Alvarez, Ruby Kelly, Ellie Leslie, Alex P., Brandon, Words Greenwood, Nate, that one guy, Hagbird Celine, Matthew Scarborough, Stellar Vision, Ariane McCarthy, Daniel Sutton, Coulter Smith, Val 9000, Jenna Tall, Quiet185, Anna Loves Riley, Omni, Riley and Anna, Poodlehawk, The Tim Caucus, Multimondi, Trevor Yanis, Lemmy101, Anthropophojack, Seren42, Catherine, Radical Maniac, Ramon Acosta, Nkosin, Violet Orchard, Sophie Baby, Political Puppy, Andreas Chiringuito, Zach Christensen, Josh Mickelson, Todd Buckingham, and Todd Lajeunesse. We raise our flag in a veil, and we salute you, our friends.